This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Mallory Ortberg. With me today in the studio is Anna Luberoff, a farmer, educator, and food justice advocate based in the Bay Area. Anna, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited in no small part because your bio gave me the idea of like what I was going to talk about at the top of the show. Uh, as well as gave me the opportunity to shoehorn uh, a weird anecdote that happened to me today. Okay. (laughs) So I was thinking through, uh, whenever it comes to writing a bio, it sounds so much fancier to say you're based somewhere than to say that you live somewhere, (laughs) right? Like, oh, you're a farmer who lives in the Bay Area. Boring. But you're based in the Bay Area. Yeah. That kind of makes it sound like... You have like a Carmen San Diego situation going on, like, oh, I'm based here. But at any given moment, I might be like in Martinique, you know, christening a yacht. Yes. That's what farmers do, actually. We're like always christening yachts. People are just asking all the time. Farmer Yachtists of America (laughs) is a very powerful organization. But yeah, based in the Bay Area, I feel like, or based somewhere just suggests like, oh, I have several pied a terres uh, (laughs) and a man who flies a plane for me. Definitely. I have many men. Actually, I'm afraid of planes. So nobody's flying a plane for Extremely me. Extremely same. Yeah. Extremely same. We <laughs> really? should not be in the sky. That is for birds. Yeah, it is for birds. It is very safe, I'm aware. But also... Yeah, that doesn't help me at try all. Try telling my brain that. When yeah. we get in a shaky metal can and we rattle around at great speeds that only the gods were meant to fly at. Yeah. I don't. No, I'm not... Co- like, I don't want to be in a tube with a bunch of strangers. That's why I'm on the ground growing yeah. plants. Yes. <laughs> yes. So the other thing that this put me in mind of was that today I had an experience with food um, that was profoundly humiliating. It's fine, by the way. Like, I got everything I needed to. But so I knew today I had a lot of um, back-to-back meetings and or recordings. So when I was rushing out of the house, the only thing that I grabbed for food during this, like, long six-hour period was a whole jar of peanut butter. (laughs) I was like, that'll be fine until afterwards when I can get a real meal. Uh, But I neglected to pack uh, a spoon. So I got here with, like, 20 minutes, what I thought was 20 minutes to spare. (laughs) And I go to the courtyard of the building here, which is usually pretty empty. And there were only one or two other people in there. And I get my peanut butter and I'm like, all right, I have no spoon. I'm not going to eat with my hands. Like this is I, – I, I can't record the show with peanut butter hands. Even so you're if just I like wash pawing them, it out of the jar. I wish. <laughs> uh, I was like, okay, I have two options. One is I can use my sunglasses. And the other is I can use this old lighter. Like, as a spoon. Those are both terrible options. Yeah, they were not great. I I, I felt very much like I was, uh, you know, cornered. And just as I was about to just go for it and eat peanut butter with a lighter, a group of French people, like, honest to God, you know, glamorous French people carrying, like, big wooden bowls of food. We record on Berkeley's campus, by the way. So, like, it makes sense to me. They come over and they're like, oh, may we share your table? (laughs) And I just sort of stunned. I was like, but of course, please, you you charming, attractive young French people with your baguettes and your fancy. So they sit down all around me and they're eating like what looks to be a spread out of Sunset Magazine. And I was so ashamed of my They didn't offer strategy. you a spoon? Well, they weren't 
They, they just needed to sit at the table. They weren't interested in feeding me. Also, they didn't see that I had the peanut butter. I was just sitting there with it in my backpack like a shameful secret. Um, <laughs> so I just sat there for about 20 minutes, and I tweeted about it and did nothing. You um, didn't eat the peanut butter. You must I, be so hungry. Hang on. So then, just compounding my competence throughout the day, I come down here, knock on the door, realize I'm here an hour early. Um, So I was able to run across the street and get a spork from a local luncheonette. That's not a word that people use nowadays. Um, (laughs) But it should be. And I was able to eat my peanut butter in peace in a stairwell. Without French people. With no, like, beautifully attired French people laughing and enjoying, like, their glamorous salads. It was a real respite. They seemed very happy. I don't, I'm really happy for you. I don't mean to say anything against them. They, they had really planned out their day better than I had. It would have been pretty funny if you had had the peanut butter in your own little corner while they were having their beautiful meal. But instead, it, you just sat there with the I secret, like the which little, I like. I felt like the little match girl just like staring <laughs> hungrily in a window. Like, you all look like you're having such a good time. Please, can I have a piece of baguette? Seriously. All right. So with that out of the way... Uh, I think we should start reading letters. Cool. Would you please read the very first letter right here in front of us? Subject is crying in my office bathroom. Dear Prudence, my mother died 14 months ago, and I recently started the first full-time traditional 9-to-5 job I've had since her death. I'm also new to the city I'm living in with my closest family three hours away. At work, I do my best to stay focused on my tasks. But this time of year has been particularly hard. My mom's one-year death anniversary and her 63rd birthday, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and my 29th birthday all fall within a three-month time span. Needless to say, this is not the most wonderful time of the year, but I'm still responsible for a very involved, creative, and client-facing workday at the office. I had a particularly hard time recently, and I got feedback from my director about how my stress and attitude were quote-unquote palpable. Then, during my three-month review, my director noted that quite a few of my fellow employees feel that the workplace is, quote-unquote, affected by how I handle and project my stress. Now, in turn, my coworkers' notes about my grief are making me very anxious and self-conscious. I immediately made an appointment with a new grief counselor. I've tried powering through the days when I need to cry in the bathroom or the mornings when I don't want to get out of bed to go to work. I put a smile on, ignore thoughts of my mom— and push down the violent feelings of sadness that I feel whenever someone talks about their mom or when they mention how awesome awesome Christmas is going to be. How can I stay present in my grieving without compromising my professional career? Is it too student to even ask this of myself? Should I push back on the criticism and stop thinking it? And what are some tools I could use to help take care of myself through this grieving process without having to go to our startup-y HR department to help me deal? Yeah, this one is so rough. And I'm so sorry, letter writer. Like, that just sounds painful and awful and overwhelming. Um, For starters, I want to applaud your instincts uh, on thinking that HR will not be helpful to you. I've said this before on the show, but generally speaking, HR is there to help protect the company, uh, not to ensure that every worker has a positive experience um, at the company. So if you were to go to HR and say, you know, anything about your current situation, I don't know that they would be especially helpful to you. Um, So I I think that's a good instinct. HR is not going to be especially helpful. Yeah, I also want to say I'm so sorry that this is happening. And I think it's really great that you have the instinct to see a grief counselor. Like, that was definitely the first thing that I thought was that it would be great if you had somebody to talk to. And I was really excited when I read this letter to see, like, okay, great, you've already taken that step. You're going to see somebody. You are seeing somebody. And I think that's really important. 
Um, yeah, you're already doing a lot right, which is a really good start, even if it doesn't feel like a good start. Um, and I think one of the things that's hard is, obviously, the advice I would love to give you is don't put a timetable on your grief and do what you have to do. And to a certain extent, that will be some of the advice. But you you ask, you know, should I push back on this criticism and stop faking it? Um, and my worry is you've already gotten a lot of feedback from both your colleagues and your director that this is affecting your work. Um, and I think if you were to push back against that and or stop kind of keeping a professional mask on during the workday, you might risk losing your job. And I don't think that that would help at all. Yeah. I mean, my... In, uh, right. Like, I don't want to say put a timetable on your I mean, you can't put a timetable on your grief. It's a process. Um, yeah, it's really interesting that she says that the that her grief is really affecting people, um, which to me feels odd because I would imagine that people would be understanding of that. Um yeah, the way that I was thinking about this was to say that what she could do is talk to her coworkers and say that she feels really um that she that the the effect is unintentional. But it sort of seems like that's already happening. Yeah, so so my take on this is going to be much more I want to help the letter writer keep their job. Yeah. And and not totally lose their sanity in so doing. Because um, I think your feelings make so much sense to me. Um, and one of the things that can be really painful about jobs is they often require of us to put aside uh, a lot of our personal feelings in ways that ask a lot. And I don't want to say every day you just need to put on a mask and die on the inside and smile on the outside, regardless of the personal cost that it comes to you. But uh, I think you have gotten enough feedback. Like, it's already challenging starting a new job. And if three months in, your director and your colleagues are already telling you um, that this is a real issue, I, I think you'll want to be really mindful of how do I make sure that before and after work and when I need to, I am taking care of myself? I'm asking for help from my counselor, from my friends. Um, I'm checking in with the people who love and care about me such that I can do my work a at least in such a way that does not invite um, further comment. Yeah. Um, I think that's going to be your best way through this. So not that you should apologize to your director or your colleagues for, you know, mourning the loss of your mother. I, I, like, that's not something you should apologize for in the least. Um, but I think to just say, yep, I, I've been having a really difficult time uh, dealing with the still recent loss of my mother. And I just want you to know I've heard your feedback. And say this to your director, by the way. I don't, I don't advise you to go around saying this to all of your coworkers. But just say, um, I am taking steps to address this. I'm, I'm getting my, you know, needs for counseling met elsewhere. You don't have to mention that you've gotten a new grief, counsel grief counselor, but just make it clear. Um, I am taking steps to take care of my emotional well-being and my personal life. And I'm really committed to um, making sure that to the best of my ability, uh, I can do what you need of me throughout the workday. Uh, which is not to say I promise I will never be sad at work or that I will never have to, you know, have a feeling. Because you shouldn't have to promise that. Right. Um, but but just to say, like, I hear you loud and clear. I am doing what I need to do in my personal time to address this. And I am committed to 
you know, being as professional as possible. And then for you, if sometimes that means people are standing around talking about their mothers, um, to just be give yourself permission to quietly excuse yourself from the conversation. Um, because that's that's asking a lot of you to stand around doing that. You're already having to wear a mask a lot throughout the workday, I think, to be able to say, oh, I got to run back to work. Hope your Christmas is fun. Something just quick that acknowledges what the other person is saying, but that also lets you go if you need to, you know, go have a cry in the bathroom for a minute or just go back to your desk and collect yourself or even just give yourself a couple breaks throughout the day to like take a walk around the building, like to just get outside, let yourself express emotion um, and then, you know, go back in and, and power through. Yeah, I that sounds good to me. I agree. I think owning it is important, not in like a you have to own this way, but in a like I hear you and I'm doing the best that I can. And it's just, yeah, it's just hard. Like, I wish that that wasn't something this person had to deal with on top of everything else. But um, I just would imagine, you know, getting notes this quickly into starting a new job. Uh, if you were to lose your job over this, I think that would just make things so much harder. Yeah. And so my goal is, like, how do you help keep your job, make it clear that you can take in feedback, take care of yourself such that you're not falling apart on a daily basis? Um, and that, you know there's not like an end goal, right? Like I promise you if you do this like 70 days in a row, you're just going to be great. And it's just like your mom is dead. That's always going to be true. And that will just feel horrible and wrong. And like there is a hole in the middle of your life. And that's not to say that every day is going to feel this immediate and profound. But it, it's it's also true that this isn't something that you just like fake it till you make it. And then one day you're just great and super like self-actualized about it all. Right. I mean, it's the stages of grief. Like yeah. this is this is one of the stages. Yeah. So and I would it just will say, pass. Yeah. If you haven't already communicated to to your director um, that you appreciate the feedback and you are working on it, um, do that. I don't think you need to say anything to your coworkers other than just you know make sure that when you are interacting with them, uh, you are keeping it. Professional, like you don't have to go above and beyond. You don't right. have to act like you're the happiest camper who ever camped. Um, but just to try to match the like office-wide level of, yep, I'm here at work. This is what we're doing. And then throughout the day, as needed, take time and space for yourself. Start seeing that grief counselor. Reach out for friends. Like just, you know, if you have a minute to text throughout the day, just text a friend and saying, I'm having a really tough time. Sometimes it can just help to know that somebody else knows. Yeah. Um, and, and and keep us posted. I'm just so sorry. This is a really hard time of year for a lot of people. Really hard. <sighs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. This next letter made oh. me more uncomfortable. Yeah, I, me too. I, I think than any letter I've gotten in quite a long time. It made me really uncomfortable, which I'm, is not bad. This oh, it's bad. Like, but it, it is bad. It's yeah. very bad. And I will... I thought through this letter in a bunch of different ways and have run through a lot of scenarios. So I'm curious to see what you think about it. I'm curious to hear yeah. what you think about it because this set off so many alarm bells. Yeah, me too. Yeah. All right. So I'm just without a, you know, prelude. Uh, the subject line is just house guests. Dear Prudence, one of my oldest friends and his wife have been going through a rough spot. They lost their home seven months ago and both of them have been out of work for some time. So when they asked in early June if they could stay at my place for a while, I agreed. They showed up with their kids in tow, ranging from an infant to a 12-year-old, which wasn't great, but was livable, although the newborn was a constant frustration. But I bonded with the older daughter, who shares my passion for the outdoors. We camped, fished, and went to the shooting range regularly over the summer and fall. 
Six months later, they left because my landlord finally caught on to their presence and booted them. Neither my friend nor his wife have found work yet, despite this being an area with a lot of employment opportunities. And I'm almost certain it's for lack of trying, having been around them. Their days seem to consist largely of watching Netflix or playing games on the computer. They're staying in a hotel right now with money that they borrowed from their family. Their older daughter is taking this about as poorly as you'd expect for a preteen whose life is constantly in flux. Her grades are poor, and she's in and out of trouble at school. Her home life, at least when they were staying with me, seems to be a constant barrage of demands that she keep quiet, go to bed on time, and behave herself. Her parents use her as a scapegoat for their problems. We're only getting kicked out of here because you couldn't keep quiet, re-leaving my apartment, and every now and again hit her, either with an open hand or once with a belt. Today, she was crying because she had to go. Most other days, she cries because she feels unloved. I make way more than enough money to support this kid, and I desperately want to shelter her while her parents get on their feet, as my hope is that this eviction will light a fire under them. But when I floated the idea to them a few days ago, they said they didn't want to break up the family. What can I do to convince them that it's in her best interest to stay in my guest bedroom rather than in a single hotel room with four other people, one of whom is a newborn? Am I within my rights even to try? Oh, wow. This kid is between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. And I really want to say, like, the letter writer's compassion really comes through so much here. I just, like, I know that you really want to do the right thing. And this kid is in a really hard place. Um, yeah. The thing that stood out to me most is that this is the behavior by the parents is definitely abusive. And there's no way of getting around that, which kind of leads me to a bunch of other thoughts on this of like the the the. I think that the letter writer has a responsibility to the child to report the abuse. And I don't I say that hesitantly because we know that reporting abuse is not like, great, I've reported the abuse now. Wonderful. Like the state will come in. They will fix all my problems. Everything's going to be great. Um, Obviously, it does not work like that, though. I really wish that it did. Um, But I would say that I think it's. At, that has to at least be an option that's on the table, in part because I'm not a lawyer, but there is just, I don't think that there is any way that this person is going to get custody of the child. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. And in fact, that part of what set off the alarm bells for me is the letter writer himself. Oh, interesting. And for what it's worth, this came in through the inbox. The name of the person who sent it, the email address, is a male name. Obviously, that's not always 100% oh. trackable, but. Um, I am unsettled and concerned that this letter writer mentions only the preteen daughter and not the other children in the house and whose suggestion is, why don't you let her stay in my guest bedroom, not I'm concerned about the abuse and the other younger, more vulnerable children in the house. That set off real alarm bells for me. So when I say this child is caught between a rock and a hard place, I did not read this letter as totally dispassionate interest. I read this as there is at least a potential for further abuse here. Oh, you read it as predatory, potentially. Uh, The flags include there's no mention of how the other children are treated. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no sense of should I respond um, in any way that would involve like uh, any kind of system, just what if I could save her? 
Mm-hmm. And also ways in which, like, we spend a lot of time alone together, which, again, I don't want to say that any time a man spends time alone with children, it's innately suspect. Um, but I, I, I don't understand why the concern doesn't extend to a baby here. Right. Um, and that he wants her to stay in his guest bedroom. And what about the rest of the kids? Like, he... Again, I'm I'm very concerned about the fact that her parents hit her, but like that he considers the newborn a problem for this girl rather than a baby being raised in a, an abusive home. Like mm-hmm. I, I'm just not sure where his priorities are at. It's also interesting that given that they're long-term friends that he or she, the letter writer, I guess mail since that's the email address that it came from, hasn't contacted the hasn't talked to the parents about this. Like, if they really are concerned about the well-being of this teenage girl, you would think that if they have this long-term, they're close friends, it's a long-term relationship, why wouldn't he say something? Right, and that they were with you for six months, and you saw a lot of this behavior. And and didn't say anything? You say only now that you have floated, like, why don't you let her come back and stay with me? Not, I'm concerned about this. Do you guys need resources? I, you know, I really strongly... Like, while you're staying in my house, you know, you can't hit your kid. Like, any sort of in-person interaction when they were living in your home that would have protected these children, you know, maybe you did those things and you just don't mention it. But there's nothing in this letter that suggests you did. You just spent a lot of time alone with this girl. Mm -hmm. And again, I don't want to say, gosh, anybody who does that is inherently predatory. I'm just... There's some real gaps here, and there's ways in which this vulnerable preteen girl who's already suffering at home seems to be getting singled out and isolated from her siblings by this letter writer um, in a way that, you know, abusers, predators often look for kids who are already vulnerable. Um, mm-hmm. They often, you know, look to develop a kind of special one-on-one relationship. You and I have so much in common. I'll take you shooting. I'll take you outdoors. Here's these really, Which also like, the shooting feels concerning. I mean, that may be cultural. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I get it. Like, if you're if you're raising a kid to hunt and, and you want to go to the shooting range, I, I understand. It's not my experience, but I get it. Um, again, I don't want to say that anybody who takes a kid hunting is right, of course not. inherently predatory, but it's just... You didn't talk about it with the parents. You demonstrate no visible concern for the other children. You want her to move back in with you. Um, I I don't trust your compassion. There's enough red flags that um, you 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 may not have any of this on your mind. You may be totally a disinterested. But then I would say your concern should be for all of the children, mm-hmm. not just this girl you have a special connection with. Like even if. There's no potential for abuse here. Uh, there's there's neglect, which is I only care about this 12-year-old because she and I share some interests and hobbies, and the newborn just seems irritating. Mm-hmm. Well, the newborn is even more defenseless than this 12-year-old, and it's in the same situation. So I, I would say moving this girl into your home is not the solution. Yeah. I mean, either way, that's not – it's not going to happen on a legal level, but I agree that that's not the solution I think even if you assume even if you assume the best intent on the behalf of the letter writer, that's still not the solution. Um, and even if you assume the best intent, I think there has to somebody else needs to be involved. There needs to be a child advocate. There needs to be a safe adult in the situation. Right. Right. So, you know, I would say if you're interested in helping all of the kids here, and again, you're absolutely right. Like, even if we put aside the question that was raised in my mind of, are you potentially being predatory. Um, 
let's assume, best possible intentions from you, letter writer. That doesn't help the other kids. um, And that doesn't really solve the problem. Yeah. Um, So the question is, how can you best help all of the children in this situation? Um, And, you know, what is within your, your scope of things you can and can't do? So some options that you have are you can report the parents to CPS. Um, and, you know, as we know, that's a that's a big tool that's invoking the state. Um, that's not to say that they will automatically come and remove the kids. Generally, the first step is um, a representative will come out and do a welfare check, um, check and see how the kids are doing, if they're, you know, being fed, if they're, you know, visibly injured, um, making sure that they're attending school, asking them questions, um, and then possibly um, putting the parents in the path of certain resources or tools that might help them, um, either parenting classes and or, uh, you know, helping them find work. I actually don't know if CPS can do that. That Yeah, that, I think that might not. Yeah, be, I think but yeah. like parenting classes and like yeah. um, parent resources. Yeah, certainly. making sure that they are able to parent in such a way that the children are safe. So that is one option. That's a that's a big option. I, I think before you do that, um, you can and should talk to your friends and say, I'm really concerned about how your kids are doing. And again, if they're doing this regularly to their kids in front of you, their in- initial response may not be fabulous. But somebody needs to say to them, the way you speak to your children and the way that you hit them is scary. It's punitive. It puts a lot of pressure and it's abusive. Like if no one has said that to them, if you haven't said that to them when they were living in your house for six months, I, I really question your judgment. Yeah. That your response to seeing children being abused was to say only, you know, I'm going to spend a lot of time with the oldest daughter. I, again, that's not like it's not wrong to want to take a kid away from an abusive situation and give them a few hours of peace, but that's a really insufficient response. You need to speak truth to the abusers here. Um, and so you need to have that conversation with your friends. Um, and hopefully, you know, they will be at least a little bit receptive. Yeah. And you can say, I'm not trying to tell you that you're horrible parents, even though I kind of think they are, but like they might shut down at that. But just to say, I see this behavior and it really frightens me and I'm really anxious for your kids. And if their response is just to totally shut down, then you may want to consider calling CPS. Yeah. I mean, I agree that like if this is if the intent is good, this person's not a predator. If they say, hey, I feel concerned. This is abuse. I you know, I value our friendship. We're friends. I feel like I can say this to you. Um, and they're, they're the parents' responses to isolate or to pull the kid away or whatever. Like, that is a further indication of abuse, and then you still need to call CPS. So at any level, regardless kind of of what – yeah, I mean, regardless of whether this person is or is not only interested in this preteen girl um, – that's kind of the – at some point, somebody needs to talk to them. Right. And, and I think that's kind of the good thing, right, is we don't have to worry about deciding once and for all what's motivating the letter writer because either way, it's not a sufficient response. Yeah, um, It's just not. Um, and, and she can't live with you. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm really sorry, too. It, it's a painful situation. I think it's especially painful when, like, there's – when you have to deal with it in a friend. Um, but I, I think – your first step needs to not be saying, hey, can I just have your 12-year-old come live with me? Um, it needs to be speaking honestly to your friends about the way that they treat their children. Yeah. And you should have been doing this a long time ago. Agreed. Whew. 
Man, that one was Ugh. intense. I'm glad the next one is actually, uh, not that the letter writer's doing great or anything. Yeah, but, but this one's pretty like, okay. This is more of like, oh, I, I can be really yeah. helpful with this. I think we can solve this problem. Yeah. Would you uh, do us the honor? Sure. Okay. Subject is, don't know what to think. Dear Prudence, I write to you with knots in my stomach as I lay next to my sleeping girlfriend. Tonight, while talking about the plot of a book, she said, he cheated on her, but she'll never find out, so it's like nothing happened. This is another in a long line of things that she has said that make me feel like she is someone who is comfortable cheating. When we first decided to be monogamous, she said she had a moment of thinking, oh, I better fuck everybody. When I asked what she meant, she got sheepish and said she wanted to self-sabotage. One of our first times hanging out, she commented on how gullible she thinks I am. She also stays friends with people that used to be casual sex partners. I want to relax and trust her until I see actual evidence of infidelity, but as soon as I do, I remember something she said and I tense up. I have fought the urge to check her phone or social media accounts, but I worry what I will do in a moment of weakness. She has previously reassured me that she would never cheat, and it seems very genuine, but then she makes a comment that seems to suggest otherwise, and I internally freak out. Okay, <laughs> there's the first thing that stood out to me is that there's just a total lack of trust in this relationship. Yes! And I'm sorry that that's happening, and it sounds like you need to have an honest conversation with each other instead of all of this sort of, like, worry and fear and, like, wanting to check people's social media accounts. Like, just talk to her. Yes. Yeah, you're trying to, like, do a connect-the-dots painting, but you can just ask her. Yeah. And unless you think she wouldn't tell you the truth... Which would also be bad. Which suggests, like, if you genuinely think, if you said, hey, a number of times you have said things that to me seem to intimate a casual attitude towards fidelity and monogamy, and I I, I feel insecure, and I want to know if we're on the same page. Um, and if you don't believe that she would give you an honest answer, that says something about whether or not your relationship is viable. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if she doesn't give you an honest answer, or if you have the thought... Like, oh, well, I couldn't possibly just ask her. That also indicates to me, like, if you haven't had the thought to ask her already, that already indicates to me, again, that, like, you need to reevaluate this relationship and think about what's going on here. Right. And the kind of one time you mentioned asking her what she meant, you know, it was when you guys decided to be monogamous and she she expressed a sense of anxiety. Um, and you said, well, what do you mean by that? And and I wonder if you could have had a more in-depth conversation because it may be that she was simply expressing a not uncommon response, which is, I'm excited about getting more committed to you, but it also brings up anxiety. Uh, you know, a lot of people at the thought of becoming like in an exclusive and committed relationship will get a momentary sense of, oh, man, I need to think about all the things that I won't be able to do now. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they hate it or they don't want to do it. They're just sort of expressing a natural, a natural anxiety, sort of like yeah. when you decide where you want to go for lunch. Part of you is like, oh, no, what about all the other places I could have gone for lunch? It doesn't mean you don't want to go there for lunch or that you're not going to go. It's just... <laughs> Um, it's just like, did I make the right choice? Right. Or, you know, depending on how it came up and how she said it, she could have very well been like half heartedly trying to communicate a discomfort with the idea of being monogamous with you. But mm -hmm. for whatever reason, decided not to be totally forthcoming about it and is trying to like drop hints to like communicate. I'm actually not super into monogamy. Yeah, that was something I wondered, too, is that maybe what she's indicating is that she has a need for polyamory or for an open relationship of some kind and that she feels like she can't express that. And so she's dropping these hints, which are making you anxious, um, 
when really it sounds like you need to have a conversation about like what does monogamy mean to you? What does that mean to for our relationship? Do you feel like like what does that mean to each of us? Right. Do you feel like this is something that we want? And if so, what does that mean in a really fleshed out way? Not just like oh, this it wouldn't it be fun if we just had sex with all the people that we know before we decide to commit to each other? Right. And you know, I think to say. As you know, I'm very pro-monogamy and exclusivity. Does the fact that you know that about me, has that led you to hide some of this because you feel like you can't say it? Because I would much rather know. Yeah. Um, Like, instead of internally freaking out, say, like, here's me. Here's my deal. I like monogamy. I like exclusivity. That is what I want. I don't want you to say that that's what you want because you know it's what I want. I would much rather know, does this appeal to you? You've said a number of things to the effect that you're not wild about the idea And instead of following up in those moments, I've just kind of panicked. And now I feel like I actually don't know if we share the same values around this. Mm -hmm. And I would so much rather know than feel like you were trying to placate me, but then would say something later that indicates you actually don't want this at all. So, you know, let me know, like, am I kind of misreading you? Have you genuinely not noticed that you say this a lot? Um, Are you trying to communicate something? Are you unaware of what you're trying to communicate? (laughs) Um, Now that you know that this is how it makes me feel, what are we going to do? Right. I mean, she might also not know that when she says that, that that's the effect that it has on you, that you could say, hey, when you drop this hint, it makes me feel anxious because I have a need for monogamy. Right. And now that she knows, she will not have that uh, ignorance to fall back on anymore. So if you have that conversation and she keeps doing it, then you would get to say, as you now know, these things make me feel insecure and jealous. Why are you still saying them? Mm -hmm. Either tell me honestly what you're thinking and feeling or knock it off. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it may be that you guys are closer to the same page than you think. And these are just kind of ways of her expressing a generalized anxiety of being in a committed relationship. It may be that she kind of does not want to be monogamous, but said she did because she thinks that's something that you want. And you guys may need to have a really difficult conversation where you ultimately decide to part ways. Something else may happen. Um it may be that you need to have a conversation about how you communicate. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that ask might yourself, also be important. why are you not pushing in those moments? Not like, I demand that you tell me everything <laughs> now, but like, why aren't you asking for more information? And I think, my guess is, you feel like if I if I did asked follow-up questions, I would get an answer I don't want to hear. Yeah. And so I'd rather not have that conversation. And from experience, I can <laughs> tell you, that does not end well. Yeah. Um, Not a good plan. The relationship where you spend a lot of time internally freaking out, lying awake with your stomach in knots while your partner sleeps next to you, and not asking them what they mean when they say things that, like, upset or scare you, (laughs) that's not a good relationship to be in. So even if the conversation is sort of reassuring, I think you need to pay attention to how do I feel when I'm with this person? And and to say, like, is this typical for you? Like, do you respond this way to a lot of people you date? Do you often feel really jealous or insecure? Or is this new? That's important to think about, too. Yeah. Very much so. The only thing I'll throw (laughs) out here is uh, a lot of people stay friends with people they've had casual sex with. I don't think that's necessarily a sign that she is or isn't interested in monogamy with you. Yeah, I I also thought of that, and I'm glad that you said that because I I've actually heard this a lot recently of like, well, she's friends with so and so, and they used to have sex. Like, it's okay, you're allowed to do that. It, it it's is the 21st century. It is weird to me, and you know, different strokes for different folks. But it is weird to me when people write in with this kind of expectation that the person they date will not only not be friends with any of their exes, but won't maintain a friendly relationship with anyone that they've ever hooked up with. 
And that's just so foreign to me. I don't understand that either. Which is not, again, not to say that everybody has to maintain, like, a vast social network of former lovers um, (laughs) that they have, like, you know, extravagant European-style brunches with every week. But I I don't understand this kind of idea of you should discard someone from your life automatically because you may have slept together. Mm -hmm. That's not to say sometimes when sexual relationships end, it's, it's in a uniquely painful way and you need space. I get that. But... A lot of the time, especially if it was casual, yeah, there's still an underlying friendliness. And because the sex was not, like, super powerfully meaningful and riddled with emotion, it's actually easier to go back to being friends. Yeah. Like, it's there's so many things going on that we just, you might not know about why this person would or wouldn't want to be friends with these former lovers. When I say that, that makes me feel like they're, like, her lovers. I know. Uh, it <laughs> makes me feel just like I'm in, like, a... 1980s like Merchant and Ivory film yeah. just like the lovers yes all her lovers that she's secretly seeing or that you're secret I mean I don't know maybe you've had many former lovers as well um, talk about your lovers you can be friends with them you can you can go boating whatever people do with their former lovers yes buy real estate together yes all right this next one we've got some good office content yeah. this, this week um, the subject of this is office rule breaker dear prudence Just over a week ago, I was signed out of work for two weeks with a slipped disc. The day after I got signed out was my work's Christmas party. I know that social rules probably state I shouldn't go if I'm signed off sick. And although I'm usually a stickler for rules, I find it difficult to follow them when I can't see the logic behind them. I had been looking forward to this occasion for months, and I had reasoned that if I'd managed to drag myself into work for the three days before I got signed out for my injury, I could drag myself to a restaurant for one evening. This Christmas party was a simple sit-down dinner. The restaurant was owned by a colleague's family member, and he had arranged for an especially comfortable chair for me to sit on, followed by drinks at a nearby pub. Had it been more strenuous, I of course wouldn't have gone, but sitting down was not an activity ruled out by my doctor, so I figured it shouldn't make any difference whether I sat at home or sat in a restaurant. I anticipated some pushback. So when a more senior colleague joked about my coming in when I was signed out, I lightheartedly mentioned that I'd managed to come to work for an active job for several days with my injury, so I was certainly able to sit in a restaurant for a couple of hours. I'd hoped this would be the end of it, but a colleague told me today that another senior member of the staff, who wasn't even at the meal, made a joking dig about my presence at the Christmas due. I am now concerned about my reputation when I return. I still believe I was justified in attending. I wasn't on bed rest, and the requirements of my job that I have been medically signed off from are much more physically taxing than going to supper, and I'd happily defend my case. But part of the problem is, I don't believe anything will be said directly to me. I thought about raising it with my boss, but if I mention the recent comment, I will implicate my friend. She's also senior to me and has already been told off for quote-unquote gossiping with people lower than her. I don't want her to get in trouble when I think she did the right thing by telling me. This is an exciting office. Yeah, there's a lot going on. Right? Like Christmas dinner, like scandal, like gossiping, you know, networks of rebuke. Like, man, you guys are. Yeah, everybody's like, everybody's talking about everybody. And you're looking forward to a holiday Christmas party, like so much so that you'd rather go than stay at home, which like I cannot relate to at all. (laughs) I've Having never been to an office Christmas party of any kind, I can't relate to that, but... Maybe they just work in a really great office. Or maybe the restaurant's really good. Yeah, I I guess, maybe. I... They have great chairs. Somebody the other day just wrote that after uh, after our holiday parties are wage theft, and I was just like, I love love the online. And also, yes. (laughs) I feel like this is a letter where I want to give the letter writer permission to ignore this problem because it is not a problem to me. Yeah, (laughs) I I don't know what you would 
say to your director, especially since you have not been like formally or even informally rebuked for this? Yeah. Um, so I, I suppose if you wanted to be really like, quote unquote, proactive, you could say to your director, hey, I'm aware that there may have been a little confusion. Here was my reasoning behind it. I hope that's all right with you. But I have to say, I'm not so keen on the justification you gave in the moment. And I want you to at least consider some of the reasons behind why other people looked a little bit askance. Mm-hmm. Um, so number one is this. I, I bristled at this. I find rules difficult to follow when I can't see the logic yep. behind them. I mean, who among us does not? Right? <laughs> like lots of life is full of dumb, arbitrary rules that we don't care But this sort of removes agency from you. This sort of makes it sound like I, a being so devoted to logic, simply cannot force myself to do dumb things like the rest of you idiots um, when they don't make perfect, beautiful, logical sense. And and I'm aware that that's not how you put it. But it sort of makes it sound like if someone hasn't explained a rule sufficiently to you, you cannot follow it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just not true. So, again, not to say that you are a monster for going and sitting in a restaurant for a couple of hours, but you could have not gone. That was an option. Um, And especially simply because you said I was able to force myself to work for three days before I finally got the doctor's note. Um, That's not a reason to go, my friend. Like the reason you were given medical leave was so that you could rest and take good care of yourself. And I'm aware that that doesn't mean being on bed rest. But if your justification is, well, I already put myself in harm's way by making myself work when I shouldn't, this is okay too. You know, part of the reason that you were given medical leave was so that you could take care of yourself and come back to work rested and ready. Um, And so even if this just gives off the appearance of malingering or, you know, a possible abuse of medical leave, again, not that I'm saying it was like really, really blatant or awful. I'm just sometimes we have to be aware of our professional reputations in a way that maybe isn't like perfectly logical in a vacuum, but that takes into account Uh, Not just what's going on with someone internally, but also appearances. Mm -hmm. So I I don't think that that was the slam dunk justification that maybe you thought it was. Yeah, I I I think it's it's also interesting that there is a lot of exposition in this letter about the chairs and the sitting and like a lot of justification about why it is okay to be at the Christmas party and like so on and so forth. And I wonder there's both a part of me that wonders whether there's some sort of internal office politic jockeying that's happening about, like, needing to preserve your reputation yeah, in yeah. such a way that it feels really important to you to make sure that everybody knows that, like, you are doing it by the book and you are following these arbitrary rules that nobody else has to follow, but, like, you're following them. Um well, yeah, and especially with that mention uh, towards the end about the other colleague being told off for gossiping, it does suggest that maybe there's, like, some enhanced scrutiny around the office mm-hmm. lately. Like, maybe previously things have been a little more lax, and now everyone's feeling a little more self-conscious. Yeah, or that maybe this person is really has a need to be seen as sort of, like, above the fray right. of everybody else. Like, oh, I follow all the rules, but everybody else is gossipy, et cetera, and I can't take it when somebody jokes about me and I need them to know. Um, that, like, I, it's okay, I'm still good, like, I'm still golden, um, even though I did this thing, but let me justify it. Um, yeah. But I, I will say this, too. I think I, come down, I came down a little bit hard on the letter writer in the beginning, and I don't want to make it sound like I think you're a real jerk who, who never follows rules or that you should, you know, especially since you mentioned your job is pretty physically taxing and 
it's not like you work an office job where you couldn't sit in a chair, but you could sit in a restaurant and that would have been confusing for people. Um, I'm I'm inclined to say I get it. I think your justification in the moment was a little bit off, but I also think it's really okay that you felt like you were up to sitting down for a couple of hours. I'm glad you went and had a good time. I don't think you should have to apologize for that. Um, And unless your director raises the issue with you, I don't think you should worry too much. Like, yeah. I think I would not worry. I think if this still bothers you in three weeks, maybe you could say to your boss, hey, I'm getting the vibe in the office that maybe people are upset about this and I just want to check in and make sure that there's nothing I need to do to smooth it over. Yeah. Maybe. And my guess is just like if it's about the Christmas party, like it's going to blow over pretty quickly. Yeah. It doesn't sound like there's been a ton of talk. One person made a joke about it. Um you know, if more stuff comes back to you, I think that that would make sense. And it's at least worth considering, you know, in the future, would I want to make a different choice? Um, not necessarily because what I did was like unequivocally wrong, but just to bear in mind that, you know, sometimes you have to keep up appearances or, or just make sure that you avoid the appearance of of doing something you wouldn't want people to think you were doing. Um, but I, no, I, I don't know. I keep looking over this. It's like you got signed off to not like lift a bunch of stuff, not to not sit down. Yeah. Um, and as a person who has had very physical jobs in my life, I can really relate to that. They are really different. It is very different to be lifting a lot of heavy things and to be sitting like they require very different things. Sitting kills you also, but in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to, like, soften what I initially said to you by, like, a solid 70%. (laughs) I think I read too much into the thing about I don't like to follow rules when there's no logic behind it. I think I was not reading you in good faith there. Um, And I think you were totally right to say this is really different than the kind of work I can't do. And it happens once a year and I want it to go. Um, Yes, I I think it makes a lot of sense. You were justified in going. Um, Yeah, don't don't worry about it unless it comes up again. And then feel free to, like, chat about it with your boss but mostly just in like a casual way yeah, take care of yourself get back to work i think people will not linger on this one for a really long time like this was a one and done yeah agreed yeah well thank you letter writer uh please accept my apologies for coming on strong and then you know dialing it way back <laughs> every once in a while that happens it's okay we're all human so i'm kind of curious before we dive into our voicemail uh, you mentioned, obviously, you work with farms. You farm. Yes. You work with food. I grow, I grow food. Uh, you, you've had a lot of physically demanding jobs. Uh, I feel like a lot of the questions that I get are about, like, office jobs. Mm-hmm. What is the greatest, like, Dear Prudence letter you could have sent in during your time uh, working with food? Oh, wow. Um, food and dirt. The do, do, greatest can can you tell I am from the suburbs that I'm, like, working yeah, with the working food and dirt, with that dirt. Um, Oh, man. The greatest, like... These rutabagas don't like me. Um, <laughs> I imagine farms do not have HR departments, generally speaking. Well, so it depends. Um, a lot of the agriculture that I've been involved in has been sort of like nonprofit adjacent. Mm-hmm. Um, and or I did do a brief stint wherein I dove into the for-profit sector. I used to grow food for Byright. Oh, shoot. In okay. San Francisco. Yeah. Um, so that was really different. And they definitely had an HR department. Um, yeah. I feel like there's... Mostly, this has not happened to me personally, but when you're farming, you're stuck with a lot of people in a 
sometimes a large space, but in an intimate way for many hours. And you will talk about like anything that you could possibly think of. You will know the names of all their cats. Like you will know what they had for breakfast that morning. Uh, And if there's an interpersonal issue, like you are going to know. Um, And I have definitely known people who have had like crazy interpersonal issues with people that they work with where you're like, literally, here's me and here's you. And there's some carrots in between us and we have to talk to each other all day or we're going to sing Christmas carols until we die out here in the sun. Like that's what it's like. And these carrots are not going to help remove the tension in any way. Yeah. No. Um, And there's definitely like from a personal standpoint, there have been lots and lots of times where like it's unclear whether you're going to end up being able to work through the winter or not. And then kind of trying to figure out like, do I then qualify for unemployment? What should I do? Do I talk to this person? Then they'll like offer you sort of like a side deal. And then you say, I don't really want to do that because I'm a (laughs) farmer and I don't super want to talk to people about their vegetables. I just want to grow them. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been in that situation. Um, But mostly it's like, you will, I know so much about people that I will never see again. Oh, (laughs) that is so true. I mean, I hope to see them again. So many jobs. I I have no coworkers that I'm like, man, I miss them. That's not true. I have a couple of coworkers that were great. But like, generally speaking, especially at certain types of jobs, you get to know somebody incredibly well for a year and a half and mm-hmm. then you never see each other again. And you're just like, I have so much information in my head about your relationship with your last boyfriend and your mother and I cannot delete it. But we will never <laughs> talk again. Yeah, but now we're never going to talk about it and I'm never going to get the follow-up. Oh. Most of my coworkers I really love and I actually miss working with them a lot because when you know so much about somebody, then like you do want to know what happens to them. I'm but there are some a... people where I'm like, man, I wonder whatever happened with her like dying cat i'm the cat died is what happened i mean i hope not maybe all cats die yeah oh surely by now if that was not the thing that killed the cat the cat is now dead yeah i'm i'm very much a proponent of like you know no friends no memories at work like just (laughs) uh, not that those things are bad i just feel like especially in the bay area people already really put in a plug for like we're a family be friends with people at work and i'm like nope show up get your job done go home Learn oh, nobody's man. names. Imagine every day you've washed up on the shore and you have no memory of who you were. Just show You're just up like and, get an amnesia. and get out. Yeah. Which is not going to be useful for everyone, but yeah, I like it as a strategy. <laughs> I feel like I'm a talker and so I will make people talk to me in the field even if they don't want to. And now I feel bad for people like you who are like, I wish that you didn't know anything. Trust that I am pretty good at making sure that I advocate <laughs> for myself throughout the day. And it's not like it's not like I walk into work and if someone tries to talk to me, I'm like, get the hell out. Like, you, you, you have to be polite. Yeah. Of course. Of course. And this job, obviously, I'm friends with everyone. Yeah. It's only other Bad jobs for the past, not those this are the bad coworkers that you never talk I to. I love all my coworkers. Yeah. This one's got cats and gardens. Does so, it really? Yes. yes oh my yes, gosh! Yes. I'm gonna... so excited because I was like, I I give my friends lots of personal advice, but like professionally, I mostly give advice about plants and goats. This is very close to plants and goats. Great. Dear Prudence. I'm calling because I had a question about neighbor etiquette. I live in a pretty small and quiet apartment community, and I get along pretty good with my neighbors. But there is this one lady, uh, she's kind of your stereotypical cat lady. About once or twice a week, I find her as I'm leaving my house in the little garden patch. 
right outside my window. And she scares me pretty bad in the morning because I'm not expecting anyone to be right outside my window. Um, the reason why she is is because my two cats usually look at the window every morning and she's has a leaf and is like looking at them. I don't know how to politely tell her that I don't want her in my garden patch even though there's just like dirt there. I'm wondering how I would go about that. Should I tell her something or should I just let it go? Should I grow some flowers so I have an excuse to tell her to get off my section of my apartment? Uh, please help. Thank you. I relate to this so strongly. <laughs> Me too. Because the maladaptive, conflict-avoidant part of my brain would absolutely say, like, rather than have a five-second conversation with my weird neighbor, I could just grow flowers so that I could make yeah. the flowers the problem and be like, it's not me. I wish you would stand in the dirt in front of my apartment every morning <laughs> and wake me up, staring in, like, terrifyingly. But the flowers, oh, it's yeah, not me. It's the flowers. Plants. like. Um, no, don't. I mean, do grow flowers if you want to. But of course, it is totally OK to just say, hey, I'm so glad that you like the cats. It really startles me sometimes in the morning when you're standing on my garden as I'm leaving the house. Would you please not do that? Yeah, I think that's totally appropriate. It's really funny because I had the same thought where I was like, you should claim that garden plot and make it yours and just like grow so many plants that she can't step on them. And they'll be like really rare varieties. So then they'll be really special. Yeah, I mean, become an amazing gardener. Yeah, grow by all beautiful means, flowers. Please. But, but do the conversation first. Yes, that is more important than like staking your claim to this land, which is also, you know, that's especially, important. Especially because it is like nigh on midwinter. Yeah. So if you start growing flowers there now, unless you live in like LA, it's going to take a while for those flowers to bloom. Yeah. Although I guess you could be like, I have seedlings. Yes. But no. But no. it would still take a long time because of daylight. Um, and you shouldn't have to like develop a new hobby unless yeah. you want to. <laughs> Just because you don't want to have a conversation. I get that it's hard to, especially like she's an older lady. I do like that this is kind of a reverse, like kids get off my lawn. That yes. <laughs> like she's just really wanting this old lady to get off her lawn. Um, yeah, I think it's really appropriate to say like, hey, I really value my time in the morning. And it's startling sometimes when you jump up or I guess she doesn't jump up. I'm imagining her like, ah, at the window. Um, but it's really startling to me when you come into my garden plot. Would you mind not doing that in the morning or... I'm glad you like my cats and like I'm happy to. Yeah, you're not have saying you do don't ever look at them. You're just saying please don't stand on the garden patch in front of my apartment, especially early in the morning. It's it's startling. Yeah. Um, and for what it's worth, you say that she's kind of your stereotypical cat lady. This is a little bit higher, right? Yeah. Like this she is something is else. A little peering directly into the windows of your home at like sunrise once or twice a week. That's a little bit yeah for a cat lady. Yeah, and it's totally appropriate to ask somebody to not that. Yeah. And keep your tone casual and brisk. Like sometimes I think, especially if you're anxious about making a request of somebody, it helps to think as you are saying it, I'm going to act as if she has already said, my gosh, of course, I'd be so happy to accommodate you. Like act like you two are super reasonable friends who are always on the same page and you barely even need to mention it because you know it's going to bring her so much joy to humor you. Yeah. So just like, oh, I've been meaning to mention this. I'm so glad that you like the cats. I know you won't mind doing this. Would you mind not standing directly on the little patches of dirt right in front of my house, especially early in the morning? It's a little disconcerting when I'm walking out of the house. But, of course, you know, anytime that you see my cats, please feel free to, you know, wave, whatever. Like, just say it in that tone that makes it really clear you are expecting, of course, this is going to go well. Of course, this is reasonable. I'm not saying that that always works. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people still get weird. Um, but it's a reasonable request. It, like, ups 
ups your success yeah. by like 15 or 20 percent if you talk to somebody as if they have already agreed with you. Yeah. Um, that's my best like <laughs> strategy that I can recommend when dealing with somebody you don't know very well, especially mm-hmm. a neighbor, and you think there's a at least something of a chance that they might get irritated or upset or like territorial about something. You just be like, oh my gosh, of course, you and I, same page. Yeah, we, we definitely are thinking the same thing. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for already agreeing to do this. Yes. Yeah. Don't give don't give anybody room to push back. Like if you approach it with like, oh god, this is going to go so badly, she's going to think like, wow, this woman hates me. Um, yeah, she probably is just, I mean, she clearly likes cats. Maybe she's just looking for a moment of human slash feline connection. Yeah, whatever it is, it is super appropriate to yeah. ask anybody, regardless of age, gender, or cat enthusiasm, <laughs> to not stand directly outside of your window and stare into your house early in the morning. Super fair of you to ask that. Yes. And grow plants. Yes. They're good for everybody. Maybe They'll make you happy. some tension-reducing carrots. Yeah. You could grow some catnip. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Anna, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad that we got to have you on the show. Um, and thank you very much for just giving me that mental image of, like, having uncomfortable conversations with your coworkers over a bunch of carrots. And you're like, I wish I didn't know this about you. Yeah. <laughs> you're welcome i hope that you never have to kneel in a field having uncomfortable conversations with people if you don't want to i hope the same <laughs> thanks 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 for listening to dear prudence our producer is max jacobs our theme music was composed by robin hilton don't miss an episode of the show head to slate.com slash dear prudence to subscribe and remember you can always hear more prudence by joining slate plus go to slate.com slash plus to sign up If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. And one more thing for our Spanish-speaking listeners. Check out El Gabfest en Español, Slate's first Spanish-language podcast. Each week, Award-winning Mexican journalist, broadcaster, and writer Leon Krause hosts a discussion of the U.S. and international news of the week, as well as sports and culture. Subscribe to El Gabfest wherever you get your podcasts. Slate Plus listeners get a bonus section in English.